Well, Charles, I mean, I'm incredibly excited to have you here with us today. Um, you've been successful in a variety of different industries. You pride yourself on, on being a connector and an individual that can put people together and make things happen. So I'm really excited for everybody to get to know you better. And for the people who don't know you very well yet, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I guess unofficially, I don't even want to use the term as celebrity trainer, just a trainer model for a long time. Okay. Um, and from all that, from all those arenas, uh, kind of adopted or got adopted by a lot of toxic mentors. Um, I went into, you know, I'd be very transparent, got into addiction, got into some really bad habits. I uh, was addicted uh, to alcohol and pills for seven years. Yeah. Um, and now, like I said, oh, sorry, 10 years for a decade. I'm now seven years into my recovery. Um, nice. So a lot of it's been a lot of reframing. So from all that, you know, rebuilding myself from scratch, you know, um, still having a lot of those skill sets, but, uh, you know, being a better version. You know, what I, I think that I am now, what this looks like is I've created the person, I created the man that I always needed when I was growing up. That's you awesome. Know, that, 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 that thing, so. Definitely. Well, for, for me, I guess we have a lot more in common than we thought. I've been in recovery now for 10 years also. Uh, same problem, uh, was mostly alcohol and benzos and uh, pills, My, but same with you? Yep, benzos, yeah. Xanax. <laughs> Man, then we're Xanax for me too. <laughs> so we're, pro we're probably a lot more alike than we, uh, uh, than we care to admit if we, if we had the same poison of choice. So, uh -huh. well, um, for you, you know, you've, been in so many different industries and you know we could probably talk for hours about the different businesses and how you've been successful but what I'd really like to get into first is how would you really define that toxic masculinity and and how does that really show up in someone's career like you mentioned you had a few mentors early on in your career that were really toxic mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that yeah, and what I mean by that, the toxic masculinity is that, like, as a man, you're expected to, ba, 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 whatever that is. Yeah. You know, um, and, and those mentors and a lot of those expectations are, as a man, you're expected to do this, and you're not expected to have any emotions. So you, there's a lot of suppression. Um, you're not allowed to feel fear, you know, yeah. and fear is like one of those intrinsic emotions that lets you, not, lets you know that you're alive. So, when I got into uh, the automotive industry, which I started at a young age, um, I was making six figures. I was making substantially more than anyone in my family had ever, but I didn't know how to deal with that. So I was feeling all these things, going through all these emotions, and these mentors were like, you know what you do, just, you gotta bottle that up. You gotta, you gotta just suck that up and keep going. So that's when the introduction to the benzos came for me. Like I was feeling all these things. I was a young sales manager. I had a family, I, had a, I was expecting father. I had all these things that I couldn't palate. Yeah. So, you know, they told me about this pill, Go Pill, which literally takes everything away. Like, so Xanax was awesome for me because I didn't feel that. I didn't feel the feeling of the anxiety and the stress manifesting. It just yeah. allowed me to function. And, and in that high production area that I was in as a finance manager, director, sales guy, you got to produce. It, yeah. You know, it's a turn and burn, you know. So after a while, you know, how it becomes toxic is you're not identifying the things around you. You're not identifying, you're starting to negate your emotions. You're starting to, uh, you know, be uh, horrible to your family. And the reason why that is, is because we're told that that's a part of being a male, right? Yeah. The toxicity of masculinity is what, what it comes to. And that's, yeah, again, it, it is, it's toxic mentors. Yeah. Well, they definitely got that right about Xanax. If they told you, hey, you just take this and it'll take all that away, for sure does for the <laughs> yeah. period of time that yeah. you're that you're high for sure it'll definitely take all those anxieties away but 
problem is once you come down, it's all still right there. And you have no choice but to either keep self-medicating over and over to keep that fear and that pain and that anxiety away, or eventually you got to face it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. And how do you think toxic masculinity really affects a man's mental health? It affects it in a large degree because as men, we were, you know, that toxic aspect of it from a lot of our fathers, their grandfathers, you do not show any kind of emotion, right? Yeah. Emotion is, is seen as weakness, right? Yeah. But that emotion is, is kind of conveying, it lets everybody else know. It's a yardstick to let everyone else around us know where we're at, right? It's yeah. important for us not to, you know, to suppress those things. That's why suicide with men is so high, right? So Aaron was just on here, you know, and uh, suicide rate for soldiers is high. Do you know that uh, suicide kills more soldiers than the war kills vets? That's crazy. Okay. A lot of that is because of that masculinity that these guys are instilled with that they can't unshovel and unwrap after they get out, right? Yep. So how does that affect them? You know, they're not able to identify the things that they're feeling inside, you know, it's, and it's hard, right? You know, and again, I, I see it even with the whole paradigm of the framing with the CTE, you know, traumatic brain injury and all that. You know, when yep. men, we get these injuries, we're told to never convey that we're hurt or injured. So we yep. keep going. Well, that's systemic. They keep on building and compounding, right? That in itself, the root of that, the origin of that is all toxic masculinity. Yeah. Not being able to be who we are, right? The idea to just man up, uh, being kind of the blanket answer to, to everything. Yeah, is... and <laughs> the, the thing that's so wrong about it, man, is like the framework, right? The, the, I, the visage or the, the whole idea of what an alpha is, is wrong, right? A true alpha, if we were to go back into the jungles, we were to look at the primates, where that whole term was derived from the alpha, which was the alpha ape. Right? Yeah. When a lot of these men use that term, they strip it of emotion, of a lot of the things that make that alpha ape what it is. An alpha ape is very nurturing, it's very understanding, it is very protective, and it does have those strengths as factors, but that's a baseline, that's only a component of what makes it a strong leader. Yeah. Right? Everybody looks at the alpha as the leader of the pack, it is that, but there's more dynamic to just that. You know, my guys, you know, some of my military guys, they use apex, you know, because they, they go so much further. And that's still, to me, that's a toxicity in their masculinity. Well, I'm the apex predator, you know why? I'm like, well, tell me why. The apex is the highest form of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you still realize that's still toxic, bro. Yeah. It's still very, very toxic. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like they're yeah. a little bit too focused on the fact that the alpha or the apex is just the top is just the top person on the top of whatever pyramid we're talking about and they're not really looking at what qualities that that leader needs to have right yes. okay got it the qualities awesome okay and so as uh, like what do you how would you define like a true alpha like what is that supposed to look like you know let me define it i, I won't even define it as a uh how about not as a in a frame, but how about as a person to okay. give you a visual of what that looks like? Do you yeah. follow basketball? Um, not much, but I, I follow it enough for sure. Yeah. So you know about the guy uh, Michael Jordan or yeah. you know, Kobe Bryant and Definitely. all that. So you, you've heard about some of the uh, uh, coaching, um, Pat Riley, yeah, or Phil Jackson. Yeah. Phil Jackson is an alpha. You know, Phil Jackson is a guy who's able to, you know, that team manage and lead a, a, a group of very strong men and varying degrees of personalities, able to mirror those personalities, able to be malleable and not so rigid, able to adapt themselves within that framework and still lead. You know, lead without instruction is what, to me, embodies a true alpha, right? Got it. 
Okay. And what are some of the misconceptions that you think, you know, if you were to ask, let's say a 12 year old boy right now, your average 12 year old American boy, what they think an alpha is, what do you think they would say? So what, what do you think is society's view of what an alpha is? You know, it depends on which, you know, which generation you want to talk to. I don't know yeah. if this millennial generation even has that word as a context, yeah. right? <laughs> I don't, I really don't. Um, so I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know if they'd even have a way to explain that. They, there's so much inclusion that I don't know if there's an alpha because everybody gets to do everything. Yeah. Maybe a better question is what, yeah. what was it like when we were growing up? Like when you were 10, 12 years old, what do you remember thinking the alpha was supposed to be yeah yeah man that's a really good question so the alphas for me growing up were like the arnold you yeah. know the uh arnold schwarzeneggers they were the they were the the bosses they were yeah. the big strong guys visually how i look but they they commanded respect they were the tough guys you know if anything happened they they took care of it they were men of action yeah and, and then but the problem with that was is what happens when they go behind closed doors? It was yeah. just one aspect that I, I only knew. But so, yeah, it was just tough guys. I yeah. only knew as an alpha to be the tough guy. You know, the so, quote unquote, excuse my language, badass. Yeah. You know, for, for lack of better words. Awesome. Well, you, you know, you mentioned you had a few toxic mentors early in your career and you got into some bad things with that. Um, what was your journey after that? Uh, so how did you... I guess what was the point where you realized that your addiction was was a problem and you needed to do something about it? Yeah, so we go over that a bunch, man. And I think the biggest thing that happened to me was I got out of car business because I was spiraling down hard, and the what I what it took for me to keep going wasn't sustainable, right? Yeah, it was just it, it required too much. So I started coaching track, and I was coaching a bunch of kids and doing really well, and thinking that you know everything is going really well, that I'm this great coach and people see me a certain way. One day I get a call from one of my parents, right? He's like, hey, do you think you can call me before practice? I said, yeah, no problem. So, and he starts to go on, he was an ex-athlete, he was an ex-NFL football player, and he starts to go into this story about, hey, you know what my coach used to tell us? When cops pull you over, always make sure you have some peanuts. I was like, well, why have peanuts? He goes, you know what peanuts do, right? They're a very strong and very distinctive smell. They mask everything. So Charles, if you're drinking, no one would be able to smell that. Hmm. Some of the kids told me that they can smell it on you sometimes. So he wasn't telling me, Joe, to discourage me. He was telling me to make sure that it wasn't so visible to these yeah. kids that I was coaching. Wow. Broke, done. Because here I am thinking I'm like this guy and nobody knows. Man, I got it in my bottle. It's masked with vodka and all this. I got my cologne on. No wow. one knows. So yeah. yeah, I'm out. Man, I can relate to that so, so, so much. <laughs> I remember working in, I was working in kitchens at the time, and I remember one of my chefs pulling me aside and having a very, very similar conversation. Um, he was basically, it was the end of our shift, and we were leaving, walking out at the same time, and he was just, he said something to me like, you know, what, what you really need to do is you need to make sure that you're keeping breath mints or something like that uh, so that you don't get caught. And he didn't say don't drink on the job. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't say, hey, I, you know, I know a place where you can get some help or anything like that. He said, here's a great way to hide your problem. So, yeah, it, it, it is. And I, you know, and I can even hear in your voice, you know, you know, it, um, it hurts, man. It's hard. It's like, I, I remember one time when, um, we had a track meet. And one of the biggest things for me, you know, people always think a lot of the addiction, it comes from the fact that, you know, we just like it. But once you get to that point of addiction, it's not. It's that I need it just to be able to do, right? Yeah. 
So we were at an event and, um, you know, I usually would have something so I can just manage it. For me, it wasn't so I can, it was, I had a lot of things that were going on, fears, you know, things that I couldn't be. So that helped suppress that. And I can, it gave me a liquid curse for, for, for lack sure. of better words. So we were at a meet and I had a lot of things and it was my daughter's track meet. Yeah. I remember this very vividly. Like I would always have vodka, you know, before the track meets. I'd have vodka in my, you know, in my Gatorade because again, what is vodka? It smells, you know, smells, you know, yep. it doesn't have a smell and you can mask it with anything. So we had all these vodka bottles and, you know, my daughter was getting ready for meat. If we hadn't looked, she would have grabbed mine and she was tired. She had just ran out of an event. She would have just taken a big chug. Wow. And what could have happened? And so I, I think about that. I think about, you know, the, the different times that I would have, drank and dr driven with other people in my car yeah. right? and, and how many times. So I don't know why that one specific instance registered to me, man, but there were many of them. There were oh, yeah. so many flags. Yeah, I remember I can, when people ask me about it, they'll say, you know, did you ever kill anybody or anything like that? And I'm like, I hope not, <laughs> but I, uh, not, not to my knowledge, but I definitely, uh, did some things that I'm not proud of, of drinking and driving way too many times. And, who knows? Because I woke up plenty of times not remembering the night before. You know, um, the other thing, did you ever get this, is that uh, I didn't know. Like, so yeah. now I've come out, I've been super transparent about it. Mm -hmm. And I've had so many people that were like, I didn't know. I didn't know it was that bad. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've definitely had that too. Yeah. Sure. So usually the people that you would uh, maybe drink or party with who, they weren't that bad. So they kind of assumed that, you know, you were just two guys hanging out and drinking together and, and they didn't realize that it was, it was a completely different experience for you. You weren't just having two or three beers at the bar with them. You were probably drunk when you got to the bar already. So how about I never stopped? Yeah. <laughs> how about, you know, like waking up, you know, like I, you know, I, I started yeah. at six o'clock, you know, and it was just something that like, you know, it was, it was crazy to me a good friend of mine like you're saying buddies yeah. i went back and i saw him we were hanging out and it was like in the morning it was seven mm -hmm. right we we're all waking up and he has chardonnay <laughs> you know yeah. and i'm like that's wild right but i used to do that and it was so odd to me and i'm just looking at this behavior that i didn't understand that i used to ascribe to like ask her my, my, my lady i used to have champagne i used to i knew when you can go and get it in fact i had a guy at the little qt near my house that would always give me you know whatever i needed even past the point of when you can get it yeah because he was my guy you mm -hmm. know so i had the same thing i had i knew which liquor stores were open earliest and where and what time they closed and everything like that i knew all my options mm -hmm. in, in my area everything wow yeah, so we got we got a lot in common for sure. I would, you know, people talk about even working wise. They're like, "There's no way I knew that you were, you know, you were drinking." I'm like, "Yeah, you know what we do on breaks? Yeah, you know what we do on on breaks on lunch? We go over to, you know, uh, Red Apple or whatever, Red Robin or whatever. Mm -hmm. We would have a few drinks during happy hour. Then yeah. we come back and produce. But what it started for me was when I was young and I was in the business. I was with these all these older older guys. They were, and I mean older, they would have been our father's age. Like they would be now, they'd be in their 60s. And I would have been 20, they would be 40, 50, right? Yeah. So they, they taught me how to deal with what people do. Just the human condition. Like people are going to be this, they're going to be that. And instead of how I deal with it now, which is like that, it, nothing that people say is about you. Yeah. I took everything personally. And it hurt and it bothered me. So the way they taught me to suppress it was you just drink, you just pop these pills, you just do this, you take this Xanax, you take this perks. 
In fact, we used to all try to get those before shifts because that's how you really produce. We had awards for guys who produced on pills. How about yeah. that? Yeah. You know, or you get, you know, so the thing that I, you know, and I, I'm sorry for going on this rant, but I want things like this to do is to bring light of it. Yeah. You know, there's so many people that I've said things and, you know, even if you look on my, my, my social, I'll talk about, you know, my recovery. I'll talk about different times and they'll say, Charles, I didn't know that. Like even you and I right now, I didn't know that. I didn't know to the degree. My doctor is on my page. You yeah. know, he would see me every day, like when I was dope sick, going in for my Xanax. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of people around us don't realize because, you know, when you, when they picture an alcoholic or a drug addict, they imagine that we're, you know, kind of stumbling into family functions or we're always noticeably intoxicated. And I think what they don't realize is, is that's actually pretty rare because for someone like us, it actually takes a lot to, to get us that visibly intoxicated. Probably 80, 90% of the time, we're operating at a, you know, 0.08 blood alcohol oh content. Mm -hmm. And that's what people perceive as normal. Uh, that's our normal personality. So, cause that's what we need to feel normal mm -hmm. when we're at that point. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, if anybody feels that way, if you, if you need to have a certain blood alcohol content to operate and function and feel normal, that's not normal. <laughs> Other people out there, cause I remember thinking it was normal for, for me, uh, for a while thinking, cause it, it was my normal that mm -hmm. I, I needed. But the rest of the world doesn't need to have a couple drinks before going to a family dinner or something like that. They, they can just handle life sober. So, yeah. The fact that you and I are talking about that and we're saying that that's not normal. Do you know how many people I'm sure are going to listen to this and be like, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Yeah. So you need to drink, right? Which is a form of medication. Yeah. You need to medicate before you do this. Or, you know, a lot of my guys, they don't understand why when they're bored, that is an okay go-to. Yeah. I said, there's a million different things that you can do when you're bored that's not gonna destroy your body. Yeah. Like I get it, you know, but, you know, and again, I don't try to get on the diatribe. The, the biggest concern that I have about alcohol and even the pills is that had I had more information, mm -hmm. you know, had I had more insight, I think that I would have taken a different route. Yeah. Had a lot of the other things that we talk about been expressed to me, I think that I would have had a different route. So like now I think that, you know, again, it's, it's good to be conveyed that these are things that are very real. Yeah. You know, 70, in fact, I think it's now 80% of adults suffer from alcoholism yeah. and some form of addiction. You know, and again, you know, you don't call it and they're not even calling it addiction because their doctor's giving it to them. Yeah. So these are, those statistics are only based on people that are identifying themselves like you and I are as addicts. Yeah. You know, how many parents every day, they call it now adulting, will have a drink in front of their kids and all that. So what are you teaching that generation? Yeah. I don't even know what the framing for that is. I know toxic masculinity, but what is that toxic parenting? Yeah, it's, and it's interesting too, cause there's, I'm, I'm not somebody who thinks that everybody who drinks is an alcoholic or has a problem. Cause I know plenty of people who can actually have a beer or two at mm -hmm. dinner, be completely fine, and don't think about it again until the next social occasion where it comes up. I just know that that's not how it affects me. <laughs> and I know that it affects everybody else differently. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if, if you have to have a blood alcohol content to function, that's definitely something for, for you to take a look at. To I'm be sure. normal. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, for you, I mean, we talked a bit about toxic masculinity also, and um, how do you feel like toxic masculinity affects the relationship dynamic between men and women? 
I love, love, love this one. Yeah. And the reason why I want to do this is because I've had a lot of different challenges in my life, not only my life, but my relationships because of what you feel in masculinity should be. Yeah. So for us as a guy in that framework, you know, I've always been a good looking guy, model this, that, you know, so the terminology or the label that I get is player. And yeah. that term is celebrated. Like it's dope to be a player. It's dope to have a bunch of females and all that. As you get older, you see the fallout, you see the infidelity, you see what the impact of all those things how toxic it is to be the player and the people that you hurt. Yeah. You know, so I firsthand have seen how that, those instances, you know, play a role, you know, and, and how that, you know, is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible that as men, you know, we're, we're encouraged to be that way. And you look on the, the converse, right? You know, females that, you know, enjoy interactions with men and all that, they're, they're considered a completely different thing. And I don't even want to use the word, but it's not fair. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's not equitable. You know, yeah. but again, like I said, with males and the way society is, we, we live in a very male dominant society. It's cool to be this kind of player, this chauvinistic person, yeah. especially now, you know, especially now, like, you know, we have the, what is it, Tate, the whatever, Andrew Tate, Andrew yeah. Tate to be uh, brash, arrogant, you know, whatever over the top, the damn Blazarians. Yeah. Our society gravitates to people like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Why you, and why do you think they do? Because I've noticed the same thing too. And it, uh, bothers me at times for sure i'm like why are why is it so many people watching this sort of thing why are they enjoying it so what, what do you think is attractive to so many people about that you know i think it is i think as uh as we were consumers but i think a lot of it is excess when yeah. you see these guys they scream excess in the nth degree right they yeah. they live lives that we can only imagine and they do things that we can never even dream of yeah. so the problem with that is is that society is what feeds these these demons, right? Yeah. They feed these guys and, you know, once these guys get fed, their appetite starts to become insatiable, then they can't quench it. And that's why you see these guys do the things that they do. Like they all start, it all starts harmless. But, yeah. you know, again, you're, you're built up like Conor McGregor. Absolutely love the guy, love his origin story, but you can kind of see where he's kind of lost and been off the beaten path because he's been fed so much that now he's become this demigod. You know, yeah. he thinks that he can do anything and say whatever, and it's not the guy that we remember. It's not the organic, the guy that we used to reach out, the people's champ. He's starting to go away from that and now he's like the villain, right? Yeah, yeah, so. for sure. Well, I guess it, excess, you're right. It, the idea of excess can get out of hand really quickly. Yes, it's sir. like the idea of, you know, say, having one excellent wife or partner is a great thing. So if you have three excellent wives, then that's even better or what? something. So you can, you can see it get really out of hand really, really quickly, for sure. Okay, that makes sense. Well, how do you think, you know, as a society, like how do you think we make some progress on these issues? How do you think we can kind of change what the next generation is being taught and what their view is of healthy relationships and uh, healthy forms of masculinity? Um, you know, it's kind of redundant and everybody keeps on saying it, but I think even what we're doing right now, having these discussions, one of the things that kind of helps you know, break down these these paradigms. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, my guy and we, we kind of talk about this. There's a decade of distinction, right? So like when you and I were coming up, there's guys that we looked at and there's a decade between them where we looked at them and we can identify with them. I think that it's going to come up. We're going to have another group of storytellers that's going to have to be cultivated to identify with this generation, you know, even beneath us, right? And I, I don't really know if that's happened. Like so, and when I say that is like the, the guys that we're looking at now, the Joe Rogans, 
my children, our children aren't looking at those guys, right? They're not looking at the Jordan Petersons or the Rogans. So it's going to be up to us to start, you know, kind of ushering in a new way because I think that we can kind of liaise with the new generation, right? Between yeah. the old and the new. So it is going to be having, you know, healthy conversations, right? Yeah. And doing them like with Discord, like not being, you know, not using ego, strapping everything, just trying to figure out how we keep this thing going. Yeah, definitely. And how do you think we can create some more, you know, you talked about how this idea of toxic, toxic masculinity is basically men not really feeling like it's okay for them to let their emotions out, not really feeling like it's okay for them to have emotions in the first place. So how do you think we can create some safe spaces and, and make it a little bit more acceptable for, for men to share their emotions or have emotions? Um, you know, it, it takes a village, right? Yeah. And, I, and I really mean that. Um, I think that we have to go back to our, our tribal-like nature, right? I think we have to be very primal. I think that men as men need to grab each other and start to kind of nurture and care for one another, right? So one of the biggest things that I do, like I have like men's groups, I have groups that I belong to. And, yeah. and as men, I have very strong men keep me accountable. And what I, what I mean by that accountability, right? As men, you're going to be struck. You're going to be riddled by temptation. You know, I'm feeling like I want to step out. I'm feeling like this. So I have guys that I talk to. Hey, you feel that way? You want to step out? What's going to happen when you do that? Yeah. You're going to lose a person that you've loved for 10 years. I have guys that call me because they're like, you know what, man? I don't feel good, man. I feel like any at all. Well, tell me why you feel that. That's a tough thing, man. I, I got to tell you, I need you here. So, you know, that having that person, having that male figure, that you can talk to, have that group of males that you can talk to and, and unapologetically tell them everything and anything and not have that response is good. So I think that men as men need to have more groups, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely all kinds of, I've, I've gotten such, I'm not somebody who has a, a huge network or a ton of different friends, but I've gotten so much fulfillment out of the few really strong men that I stay close with that I, I know I can bring that sort of issue to or those sort of emotions I know I can bring it to and they're going to hold me accountable. So I think everybody needs a few friends like that in their corner. Mm -hmm. for sure. Well, um, toxic masculinity, how do you feel like having this culture of toxic masculinity? How do you feel like that kind of breeds other uh, socioeconomic issues like, say, racism, homophobia, things like that? So my culture is big, man. We've had a few suicides lately. And in the black culture, like you, there's no show of emotion, right? There's no expression. You, you don't convey love. Conveyance of love to another male, it does not exist. That's yeah. considered homo, like, you know, uh, homosexual in nature or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, that in itself is very toxic. Um, I think that a lot of times, you know, why we have some of the challenges in, in my in my culture is because of that fact I, I see it in other ones where you know again you know culturally or whatever it, it is it's different right and i i, I don't want to talk out of turn because i'm you know not caucasian but i i was raised predominantly white area right and yeah. the the guys that raised me the men that kind of you know took me on they were a lot more expressive like one of the guys that's kind of like a father figure to me his name is jack big big burly white dude right yeah um, what I loved about Jack is big, tough guy, but he's always so emotionally expressive. Like I'd see him and he'd come over and give me this big hug and say, uh, you know, how are you doing? Like he'd say, I love you, all these things, but he was very visibly different than what I was used to, what I was used to black men, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that was a different framing. That was a different framework. I think that, you know, culturally we're different in that way. You yeah. know, I think that we can learn from, uh, you know, one another in that, but I think that 
the masculinity at many instances gets in the way. Yeah. It gets in the way. Like I ran track or I've, you know, I played football, you know, and in, 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 uh, in that, if you're hurt, you get injured, you do not tell anyone. Um, when I was in uh, my freshman year in uh, high school, I lost a good friend of mine to football. He, he actually died. He had a, uh, he got injured in the game before, and I guess it was, um, they didn't find it, but he had an uh, aneurysm. Wow. He kept playing, and the next game that he played, it ended up rupturing, so he ended up dying, right? Wow. And again, all that could have been prevented had he just expressed to his dad, like, hey, it's so many it doesn't years. doesn't feel right. Yeah. He was telling his girlfriend what we didn't realize the week of that last game that could have prevented or saved his life is that whole week he was throwing up, he was having huge headaches, and a lot of stuff that were visible signs that he was into some kind of distress. Yeah, if that if that went to a personal trainer or something like that, somebody who was even a somewhat of a medical professional, they probably would have been able to say, hey, this is serious, you need to look at this. Yeah, um, no more hits, you're yeah. done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that's the kind of thing that if you go to some dads, you'd hear tough it out, man up, you'll be all right. Yeah. It's the big game, you know? Right. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Okay. And um, I think, honestly, what you just said, I think that men like that, that mentor or the guy that you knew named Jack, I think that's the real answer to shaping the next generation. I don't think it's something that you or I could just go solve by ourselves. I think that essentially what we need for the next generation to be better is we just need as many men as possible embodying the right qualities of what it means to be an alpha, <laughs> setting the right example. Because you saw that guy Jack and you thought, okay, I can, I can say I love you to a man and that doesn't make me gay. Mm -hmm. And at the time your mind's probably like blown, right. you know, but all of a sudden you realize that next thing you know, okay, you can actually say I love you. You can actually share love with another man like that without it being perceived as something that's gay or, or anything like that. So I think that's the real answer, honestly, is we get as many strong men out there embodying the right qualities, whether they're in sports or in business or on a podcast or whatever. It's just people that the younger generation can look up to. And you know, you go back to under point that you said about love. Why that's so important for a male to show that is because men, we know the power that that word has. So what do we do? We, we throw it around to women all the time because we know that they understand the context. So then it starts losing its symbolism, right? So yeah. to be able to give that and be able to use that and realize, oh my gosh, it has the same form and I don't just have to throw it around anyway because I think that I can use this power yeah. is huge. It's huge. huge, it's huge. huge. Okay. And, you know, out there, can you share some examples of some of the different types of men that you've seen kind of get canceled by society and what you think, like, led to that? Yeah, I've seen a lot, you know, so we can, you know, top off the top of the top of my head, you know, you can say Will Smith. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, uh, who's uh, another couple uh, that I can say? Well, just any of those guys from, you know, uh, any of the movie industries like uh, the Weinsteins or any of those those directors. Um, some of the actors that I, I really looked up and admired, like I used to love Kevin Spacey, mm -hmm. you know, um, and why these guys were getting canceled, right? We used to think that these guys were so amazing and, and all that, but these guys also were giving that title of alpha and, and player or whatever. Yeah. So they were allowed, they were entitled, they, they felt entitled and they felt as though they can do anything without any harm. And now we're finding out that you, you can't do those things. You can't, you know, go around, you know, um, 
you know, doing whatever you want and not thinking that it's going to have, you know, fallout. So, yeah, so many of those. The Will Smith one was, it, it was tough because, you know, I think the world saw this guy kind of coming unglued, right? Yeah. We saw, you know, all the toxicity and what he believed that he is. Yeah. Just unfeeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can definitely see that. Everybody that he, all those things that he was trying to defend were none of his own. Yeah. He was defending a world that he didn't really believe in, but he, he had to. So all that toxic masculinity boil over and the world saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit because I haven't gotten to talk to you a lot about yet about fitness. And I mean, some of the things that you shared with us when we were getting, getting prepared and getting to know each other yeah, yeah. were pretty impressive. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you've been sporting a 4% body fat percentage year round is that right yeah man it is it <laughs> okay is. so i've been i've been working out and you know doing cardio and eating for about a year now mm -hmm. and i've got myself down to like 15 percent. That's, <laughs> that's that was a stretch for me mm -hmm. and i felt like i was starving at that point so how'd you get into fitness for starters i know you obviously weren't living an incredibly healthy lifestyle yeah. back when you were uh when you were using and drinking that much so what did that transition look like into the fitness world for you? No, you know what? I've always been fitness oriented since I can remember. Like I started weight yeah. training when I was eight. You know, the area that I lived in, I, you know, I played football at a really early age. My dad was kind of like a trainer type guy. Yeah. But he saw me getting into a lot of mischief, you know, and football and sports only go for so long. So yeah. my dad's like, in the meantime, I got to keep this kid idle. So he, he found a weight bench and from there I'll, I was hooked, right? It was something that I can do. I can put all my energy in and I didn't have to have anybody else there. Yeah, it's a healthy um, outlet. Man, and the thing that I like about the body is that it's one of those things that, you know, no matter, you, you can always see the return. Mm -hmm. Everything you put in, you can get out. And joking about the, the body fat and all that, man, I, you know, it's, it's good and bad. You yeah. know, it's good and bad. I've always been what you call a hard gainer, meaning it's hard for me to gain weight. So I metabolize things incredibly fast, so I burn. So it's hard for me to build muscle, like where opposed to you, you might be, you know, you might be, uh, um, easier at that you know you, um so uh the fitness for me has always been my outlet it's always been my form of expression e even as much as i'm expressing here sometimes i feel like i haven't been able to convey how i felt i feel like with my body it's always the way i explore my uh, exp express myself i feel like it's my way to convey my art right yeah. and that's what i love about other bodybuilders that do it and they say bodybuild right i don't call myself a weightlifter as such bodybuilder building a specific shape so yeah that's always my thing man i, I call myself like a body artist right like when yeah. people see me you know and the thing that was so important with that is i didn't always i wasn't always the guy with the oratory i used to stammer a lot i was very soft-spoken i'm still kind of soft-spoken um but i think with presence that was always the thing that differentiated me from everybody else like people see me like yeah look at this guy you know and not talk much you know yeah but that only lasts for so long then i figured out i had to cultivate a voice to go with this the strong presence yeah that's awesome and you know as you transitioned into into fitness you were lifting at a very young age and mm -hmm. you, you identified that at what point did you start actually working it into your career yeah so after the everything i was in the after the automotive thing kind of went you know kaput or whatever i started to put more emphasis on training because i've always enjoyed that and a lot of people ask me hey man you look amazing i want to look like you do mm -hmm. So my, my lady actually told me, she's like, why don't you just start training people? You know, mm -hmm. you make your own schedule, you do it, you know, like whatever. 
Initially, I went after just everybody. I went after broad demographic like every trainer does. Like, you're going to do that. You're going to put yourself in a cesspool with everybody else. Yeah. My differentiator was, was because of my modeling, because of my, you know, my, my other careers, I knew people. Like, I knew celebrities. So I'm like, why don't I just be a celebrity trainer? And so I started going after the football players, the actors, the models that I knew. Yeah. You know, because, you know, again, that in itself, even though these people look amazing, they still, there's certain other aspects they might not, not know that I had. So I started going after them. And, you know, celebrity training, you know, these, these persons, which they're no different, you know, than us, but there's a different nuance to it. It's like, how do you train somebody that might have a movie or that's going on tour or that might have like, you know, um, a week, but then they are going to be gone for months because they're traveling abroad. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you manage that, you know, that, that relationship? So. I went into that, and I've absolutely, it's been incredibly rewarding. Awesome. How long have you been doing that now? It's been about four or five years. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. And so what have been some of your favorite clients that you've worked with so far, and, and why? Like, what, what have been some of the most rewarding experiences training people? So a lot of the football guys are fun, right? Yeah. So one of my good guys, my, my guy Jonathan Cooper, he was a first-round draft pick, you know? This guy was, you know, when you talk about manifesting thing or the importance of visualization, when he decided he wanted to play football, one day, you know, he wrote down every goal that he wanted to have. I want to be first team all SEC. I wanted to this and that. And he made it come true. Yeah. And it was like hearing his story and, and hearing that framework. You know, so one thing that you and I can do, like, you know, we can talk about the successful people that we know. When you get to that landscape of, you know, professional football players and some of these aspects that it's less than 2% of the people that ever do that, yeah. it's a completely different conversation. Yeah. It's a completely different conversation. You know, and again, even the nuance to like what they think about versus what we do, you know, and I, I was driven by that, you know, because I've been in, you know, in capacities like the agencies that I would assign with and the, the jobs, the campaigns that I would have booked. Nobody did that. So I want to know what that looks like from the other aspect. Like I played football, but I never got that high. Like I went to high school, you know, didn't go to college, play football college. But, you know, what does that look like? So, yeah, yeah it's been incredibly rewarding. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And, you know, everybody wants to get in shape. It's not, I guess we can't say everybody, but <laughs> it's something that almost everyone out there is interested in. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people have one of these same uh, realizations as me that it's like, hey, you know what? I'm 31 years old. It's time to make some healthy habits if I want to, if I want to be in good shape. Yes, sir. So what would be your best advice to, you know, your average person out there who, Maybe they don't want to, maybe they're not training for a movie, maybe they're not training for something big coming up, but they really just want to develop some healthy lifestyle habits. So what would be your advice to anyone like that? You know, I would say, you know, uh, cut out fast food. Yeah. You know, try to make sure that everything's all organic. Like, so my, my, my lady and I say single ingredient food, like anything that you can look at that you can pronounce if you can't pronounce it you cannot eat it that's a, a prerequisite to my clients yeah um activity is good motion creates emotion so in this day where we're stripped from serotonin and we have so many people struggling and suffering from you know emotional dis-ease emotion is everything so get out and walk you know so you know you don't have to train incessantly but my lady and i walk ten thousand steps you know they, they talk about how much cardiovascular does to just adding age it to you know years to your life yeah. so do that um and water Water's life, man. You know, 70% of our body is water and we just don't hydrate or drink enough of it. They're finding a lot of the, the conditions or the ailments that we're having are because of poor hydration. So really simply do that, man. Motion to motion. Um, try to stay active. Uh, cut down stress. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do that, you know, not 
many people, not everybody wants to look like me. They don't want to do this, but they want to look fit and be be healthy. So yeah. those 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 components. Well, I would argue that almost everybody does want to look like you. They just maybe know it's not quite attainable. Right. Like I don't know anybody that's going to look at you and be like, ah, "That that body four percent body fat is just not for me. I'd rather right, have twenty five percent body right, fat." Right, 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 right. But maybe they know that that's a little out of that's going to require a little more discipline than they're willing to muster. So. You know, it could be that, you know, like, yeah. I, and I've, I've actually heard people say, no, I don't want to look like you. I, I mean, I want to get, get in good shape, but I have no desire. I'm like, you know, okay. Teach I can out. remember saying all of those things when I was out of shape, like yeah. saying like, oh, yeah, I, I don't think I'd want to, I think it's more, you're like trying to kind of temper expectations, I guess. 100%. Yeah. But now that I'm like in it, it's like, yeah, I mean, I want to get, I want to get better and better and better every month and every year. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't want to take anything off the table for myself, but. And it's funny because a lot of people are like, you know, but I'm so tired, I don't have energy, I don't have this. And they don't realize that once you start training, you do some of these things, how much energy do you have now? Way more, more energy, yes. Yep, I'm sleeping better and I'm getting up, like jumping out of bed in the morning, ready to rock, so. And you're healthier, right? Yeah. So again, it's, it's weird. And I tell people about the validation loop that it has. You start doing these things, you start mm -hmm. feeling better, and it validates the reason why you're doing them. So it continues yep. a perpetual loop. But all you have to do is do it. You have yep. to get started. Right? Definitely, definitely. Well, what are some of your goals moving forward? I mean, you've, you've accomplished a lot. You're in a great spot in your life. And what are some of the things you've got coming up for yourself? You know what I really do? I would really like to kind of be, uh, kind of take on, um, uh, a better role with some of these uh, teams, right? Like I see some of these athletes and some of these teams out there. I, I'd love to be a wellness director for one of them. So I've been actively kind of putting together a program for what that looks like. And yeah. uh, what people don't realize, a lot of these functioning athletes, these professionals, they're able to drink and they have pills there at their disposal. So I want to be able to educate them on what healthy living looks like within working with that frame of professional sports. You know, So there has to be a wellness director for that. Um, I want to, cause you know, we didn't talk about this much and I'm kind of careful on it, but uh, I'm a plant medicine advocate. I work in the cannabis space. Um, and uh, cannabis for us is the number one gateway off of anything, especially benzos, opioids, and, and all those heavy things. So I uh, want to normalize more of what cannabis is opposed to what it's not, right? yeah. what it does. So um, that, and um, yeah, man, hopefully one day, you know, go on Rogan. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so, awesome. And, you know, I mean, you've been in so many different industries and you've had a really, really well-rounded career so far. So I'd be curious to know, what do you consider like some of your some of your most rewarding moments or your, your most successful moments? It doesn't even need to be success in the conventional sense. But what are some, what have been some of the most rewarding moments of your career so far? Yeah, uh, you know, so a little while ago, I would have had some like amazing answer to, to give you. I would have like pinpointed like the birth of my daughter and da, yeah. da, da, and they are like uh, they are very poignant moments in my life but i think this moment right here is amazing i think that what i used to do is i used to live and and try to plan out and fill this void of all these moments and i think that now i live for the moment so this moment right here is the one that i'm living for like this right here yeah yeah that was a pretty awesome answer <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty incredible answer so yeah. you're focused on making this moment right now wherever you may be at mm -hmm. that particular moment the best most rewarding moment that you've got mm -hmm. i love that 
Awesome. Well, Charles, I've loved having you on the show, man. Um, I think you brought a ton of value to everybody who's going to see this. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, my socials, I'd say uh, you can get a hold of me on uh, Instagram. I'm okay. on Instagram, Charles underscore J underscore Flanagan. I'm on Facebook, Charles J Flanagan. Uh, I have a website page is still in production. But uh, yeah, on that, you know, you'll have all ways to book me or contact me and any of that fun stuff. But I love any kind of conversation. If anybody wants to slide in my DMs, I'm not weird about that. I love when people <laughs> slide in my DMs. Um, so yeah, no, those are the basic ways to get a hold of loves me. Loves to connect. Loves mm -hmm. to connect. I love to connect. All right. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much, Thank Charles. You. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you, Joe. Awesome. Thank you.